You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hi there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson of Mount Aloysius College, Assistant Professor of English, welcoming you again to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. And if any movie in the last 20 years has accurately portrayed Satan's kingdom, it's probably Mike Judge's Office Space. And uh, it, I just found out last week that this is uh, the 20th anniversary of this uh like prophetic film, I think. And so I thought I'd put a call out on the little private sectarian review, private Facebook group, see if anybody would be interested in doing a sort of a quickie retrospective episode. And sure enough, a couple of, of, uh, of friends joined me. Um, first of all, I'm really happy and proud. Uh, I have to say to, uh, be the person to bring super fan, um, Jeffrey Carter, uh, bring his voice on the Christian humanist radio network. He's not, he's a friend of all the shows on the network. And, uh, and he's, uh, been, a longtime supporter of this show too. Jeffrey, how you doing? Oh, pretty well. Thanks for having me. Jeffrey has um, specific work experience that he thinks relates to this movie, <laughs> as I'm sure we all kind do. Of sort of, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, Jeffrey's out there in California, and uh, joining Jeffrey and I is a longtime friend of the show, Jordan Paz. Jordan, how are you doing, man? Good. How are you doing? Good. Good. Your semester's well. Good to be here. Sorry. Your semester's well. Uh, oh yeah, I'm in the middle of the semester. Aren't I? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it's me that too. point of the semester, right? <laughs> yeah, two, I am two weeks to go till spring break, and I really need it. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we still have three, so I'm uh, I'm not I'm oh, a little behind you, but I'm actually doing okay this semester for once in my life. So, yeah. um, anyway, it's, it's good. It's just it's a lot. <laughs> let's get to the meat of this one here. So, um, we ever, I mean, I would assume this movie's 20 years old. So if you haven't seen it, we're going to spoil the heck out of it. We just sort of assume if you're listening to this, it's because you have some special relationship with the movie and want to hear people talk about it. So we'll throw spoilers out there, um, without, uh, without reservation probably. But, uh, in, in the meantime, I want to kind of hear you guys' uh, first experiences with this movie and sort of like what it is that, uh, stands out to you about it. Jeffrey, do you want to begin? Mm, do I want to begin? I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but I will, I guess. Um, you know, I didn't see the movie when it first came out in the theaters because, well, obviously part of the history of the movie is it was a flop yeah. to begin with. Um, I was one of those people that saw it um, on one of its infinite cycles um, early in the 2000s on Comedy Central, and that was my first experience of it, um, and I just immediately loved it, and I'm sure that's partially just because the, the, the tone of the movie just matched my, uh, my work experience uh, throughout the, the 90s and up to that point in, in a lot of ways. And uh, and then later on, I didn't know initially that it was a Mike Judge film, um, but just uh, finding that out later, it was like, OK, well, this this makes incredible sense why I love this movie so much, because uh, I was a sort of a on the down low fan of uh, Beavis and Butthead mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> uh, which which is kind of a, you know, uh, uh, anathema for an evangelical probably <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah i'm in the same boat but, uh, there yeah <laughs> but yeah no I, I just uh 
the movie just kind of spoke to me in, in a lot of ways uh, at that point in my life because I was like, uh, mm, hadn't been married but for a few years, had little kids, um, moving from a couple of different jobs and always dissatisfied with every one of them. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, there was a lot to relate to there. Yeah. Thank you. Jordan, what about you? I cannot remember when I first saw it. Uh, I think I saw it on tape. So it was that that mm-hmm. long ago. Um, but I, 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 my two earliest jobs actually are both kind of reflected in the movie because my very first job, I was a bus, bus boy. Okay. So the whole restaurant thing, like the tchotchkes environment yeah. that kind of pops into the movie a couple of times, that's totally real to me. Um, <laughs> You know, I worked with people like what is it, Brian? You yeah. know, the 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 super waiter. Uh, and I worked with people like Joanna. Uh, but my second job was actually as like a cub reporter at my local hometown newspaper for one summer during college. And we had like not full on cubicles, but little cubicles like that. And I remember, I don't, so I can't remember if I saw the movie before I went into the cubicles or afterward, but it was close enough that I remember thinking it was very much, you know, e- even with like the kind of half cubicles we sat in, it still affected the environment in a very office space like way, you know, with like, you know, the Dilbert thing with the, what is it? The prairie dogging, you yes. know, with the people popping up and, bo- you know, <laughs> talk to each other and just that kind of generally, you know, you can't point to anything specific, but the environment is very grim. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, so it was, it was, I saw it probably, more than 15 years ago, but I can't remember exactly when. And since then I've had even more office space like jobs. Yeah. I've actually worked in an office very much like this for a very brief time. Um, right after college, I just sort of did some temp things until I found something, um, for the year between college and grad school for me. And, uh, and one of them was at some bank and I I better not say any names (laughs) here, but, um, and the, the bank was, doing it was being sued for some reason and they needed to do some record keeping and so they had these temps like me come in and apparently they had these two different computer systems that couldn't talk to each other so my job basically was to go through (laughs) file by file and print off the the records from one system make piles of them so that someone else can enter it into another system so that they could actually get the data needed for this lawsuit and so wow. and this was long after having seen um uh law f- office space but it is amazing it was amazing to me at that time the uh the the way in which these people actually <laughs> exist in real life oh, yeah. and and the way in which these cubicle spaces create the absurdity that this movie is so mm-hmm. good at uh at well, portraying well, I, it, I'm struck that you said that that job was at a bank because the second big job that I had that was very office space like uh, it was actually the job that allowed me to get married. <laughs> so I'm thankful for it. Yeah, but it was a temp job and it was for a company that had designed some kind of serious software that actually got picked up by the IRS uh, that could it was like text recognition software for IRS documents. OK. And but but of course, text recognition is not perfect. So our job as temps was to sit in these little, like tiny half cubicles and just for eight hours go through IRS forms looking for mistakes in the transcription. And I mean, it was so, so and, I, and it's striking that again in the movie, Peter and all of his friends work for some kind of company doing bank records, right? Yeah, yeah. For Y2K, so, I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so just, thing, yeah. so just all of this <laughs> data, I mean, it, it's, it just, it, Something about it makes it mind-numbing, and you, but you have to have structure for it. And I think the mind-numbingness 
and the structure that becomes suffocating. I think that's just the perfect breeding ground for the kind of thing Judge is satirizing. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, can we talk a little bit about Mike Judge? And so um, let me yeah. just at the beginning here, the um, this story was kind of a spinoff of a series of shorts that Mike Judge created pre-Beavis and Butthead. Um, this was sort of uh, in the early 90s um, called Milton. And so um, I actually have a clip of one, and a lot of the dialogue you will recognize, it's directly from, uh, it directly finds its way into the movie, you know, almost 10 years later. And uh, But this is Mike Judge doing all the voices. He's doing both Milton and Bill Lumberg here. Um, but this scene should be pretty recognizable. I told Bill if they move my desk one more time, I'm quitting. I used to be over by the window, and they moved me three times already this year. And, and if they do it one more time, I'm out of here. I used to have my own stapler, too, and then when I moved back, they made me give back my stapler. And, and But Bill told me I'm supposed to have a stapler, so and until I'm told different, I'm just going to take a stapler. And if they make me give it back, I'll, I'll just I'll set the building on fire. <laughs> And here comes Bill Lumberg. Oh, hello, Milton. What's happening? Um, I'm going to need you to go ahead and move your desk again. So uh, well, if you could go ahead and just get it as far back into that corner as possible, that'd be terrific. But that way we'll have some more room for some of these boxes and things we need to put in here. Well, okay. And, uh, oh. There's that stapler I've been looking for here. Um, Let me but, just go ahead and get that from you. Thanks. Well. Okay, so uh, if you could go ahead and just get to that as soon as possible, that'd be terrific. Well. All right. Thanks a bunch, Milton. Okay. Bye bye. <laughs> well, but. Well, okay, but I'm going to set the building on fire. <laughs> so, so Milton becomes this sort of like uh, what happens to a kind of person who's put upon by this system that you have these territorial battles over utterly meaningless things like staplers mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And so um, let me just take a minute to talk about Mike Judge. I mean, so I knew him from Beavis and Butthead, of course. Um, and I, I always knew at the time that there was something really kind of smart about that show. Uh, and in, even if you just go as far as it's making fun of its own audience and the audience is aware that yeah. it's being made fun of. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, people have made a lot of hay about um, idiocracy and that sort of thing. But there is something about his satirical like work that seems weirdly prophetic <laughs> and seems it's so it's so observant about the, the the details of our culture that that make uh his observations about it just utterly ring true to us today uh, jeffrey do you have any thoughts on on mike judge as an artist well i think the thing that strikes me most about all of his work is it's just has this raw authenticity about it from the like the working class perspective and um and it's probably something some listeners that are keen on judge and his work might want to listen to is the nerdist a few years ago the nerdist podcast had an extended interview with him i think it was when um this um what is the the silicon valley project that, mm. that he started mm -hmm. whenever that was coming out he did a like a two or three hour interview with the nerdist and mm. he talks about like everything in his career from the ground up and um he was just like one of these 
I can relate a lot, you know, to his background story because he's like one of these working class guys growing up in a small town in like New Mexico and Texas, West Texas, just that kind of scruffy, rough existence and just the, the stupid things that, that you do as a, <laughs> a kid and a young, young adult in those kind of situations and then just kind of, you know, scrabbling and scratching uh, to – to make something out of yourself and, and climb up the ladder and all that. So um, there's just a, a, a lot to me in his work that because of his like raw authenticity, he seems to see through a lot of things that uh, other people just take for granted, like in the working world. Yeah. And let this, what I love about a lot of the writing in the, uh, in uh, office space is that he's just, constantly undermining all that horrible passive aggressive office speak and <laughs> and uh positive even though i'm gutting you while i say it like that fish he does on his desk <laughs> from from management you know and just i'm i'm dehumanizing you and and stripping your your life away but you know you're getting a paycheck <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's all based in detail like he just such an yes, eye yeah. for detail like minute detail down to milton's glasses right the the, the mm-hmm. kind of extreme uh focal side yeah the, yeah and, and i mean every little detail that's what makes the world it's it's not a world created from above it's a world kind of constructed from below right and and so he's got such Mm -hmm. an eye for detail and i really do think there's a case to be made that he's like one of the kind of premier popular artists of generation x i mean i really do think his work is um up there in terms of just like not just quality and and entertainment value but actually insight i think (laughs) i think you can make a case for him as, as being one of the most important generation um, X sort of popular artists. And so, yeah, I, I, and this movie to me is like the, the pinnacle of his career. I still think that this is the best thing he's done and, uh, and it hold, holds up. I rewatched it again last night and, and I think it still holds up today. Um, Jordan, what are your thoughts oh, yeah. on Mike judge? It's, it's really close for me, but I'm going to actually have to disagree and say, I think his, the best thing he's done is King of the Hill. Okay. Oh, I mean, that's like, I, this is a good point. Yes. It's, it's, it's like neck and neck for me, but I, there's just so much more of King of the Hill. I think in those terms a lot more now. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I am basically Hank Hill. Um, <laughs> my, my daughter, my daughter learned the expression, dang it from me, um, <laughs> which we could talk about. Dang it, Bobby. But, uh, <laughs> that was an awesome. <laughs> That was a great Hank Hill. Jeez. Yeah, I have a really good Hank Hill, actually. He's so great. But but in both of those, like the the two things that I notice about Judge and his sensibilities is again the detail. Like his all of his stuff has this mass of not not just observed detail, but perfectly observed detail where he gets the tone just right too. And the the thing, you know, whether that's, you know, kind of small town southern or Texan life in uh, King of the Hill, which is absolutely spot on like i know people like everybody you know i know boomhauers and dale dribbles and all of those people um but but the one what he was really carefully amassing is a detail of like petty humiliations yeah in office space which i think is really key like you know the one doorknob that always shocks you you know and like uh the, the chirpy receptionist that's just loud enough to be heard from your cubicle so it's distracting and in, just all of those kinds of things just it's it's so real and it's so perfect and and the other thing so there's that there's that like massive very carefully and minutely observed detail that just kind of makes it real you know without being 
super cartoonish. Um, and even when it does go over the top, everything else is so real, you believe it, you know? Um, but the other thing is that something that I see recurring through everything of his that I've seen is he thrives on deflating pretension. Yes. Like he, mm-hmm. he, he never, he, he likes to observe and poke a little bit, of, you know, have a little bit of fun with people, but very sel- very seldom does he actually make fun of anybody. Thank you. Um, yeah, you can see that like his parodies of people like Dale Gribble, you know, the conspiracy theorist extraordinaire. So he, obviously he's one of my favorite <laughs> spoof characters. Uh, he's he's ridiculous, but he's affectionate. You know, like you really you really like Dale, even though he's got crazy ideas um, in an office space. The only people who are treated just like garbage are the really pretentious, ostentatious people. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's an affection for basically everybody as long as you don't put on airs. Yeah. You know, as long. And that I feel like that's kind of a very working class kind of attitude like I'm, I'm okay with you being my boss just don't you know do that nouveau riche thing of like your porsche with the custom plates and the terrible <laughs> suspenders you know i mean bill lumberg is he's let it all go to his head and he needs to be brought down a peg yeah right he's the archetype of the yuppie yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. and there is like one moment even with lumberg where like he gets humanized slightly when he's going over the list of cuts with the, with the bobs, the two consultants yes. who are cutting people. And then they, he disagrees with their assertion, their, uh, whatever their account of Peter. And, and then, and so they start, they ask him a question and then the camera shifts and he yeah. becomes like put on in the spotlight between these two consultants, even in uncomfortable for just a minute, <laughs> you see the terror in his face. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I love that scene. Yeah. It's, so it's great. brilliant. Um, and so you know, one thing I want to say about this movie particularly um, and, and Jeffrey, you had sort of alluded to the fact at the beginning that this was kind of a box office bomb um, that grew in reputation with through a home video, right, basically. Uh, and now is kind of it's hard to imagine many people haven't seen this movie and, and so many people have affectionate feelings for it. Um, mm-hmm. I have to I have a theory um, and I just want to run it by you guys. And this is a claim that I'm willing to sort of be told how stupid I am for making. Um, but the, as most of my claims are frankly, but um, in, in this case, I feel like in 1999, when this movie came out, the economy was still like strong, especially the tech economy. Right. And so it wasn't until after this movie happened that I think people had reason to feel as much animosity towards their workspaces. Um, and so then I think they found this movie later because of uh, of lived lived events like in our actual economy and so i think he was right about his observations about the soul killing nature of this and other mm-hmm. people knew that right but it didn't strike a chord with people until the actual economy um like went through sort of its, its haywire uh in the in the 2000s right and so yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's sort of a theory I have about why this movie took a little bit to to get its its legs in terms of uh, audience. And so, um, I don't know if you if you want to kind of push back on me that uh, or not, but um. uh, I, I don't know because Dilbert was already huge, and Dilbert had been around like ten years or more before Office Space came along. Good point. Um, so that was actually my first fr- my very first frame of reference for like kind of white collar office work was was Dilbert, and it's got many very similar traits like kind of the although it, it skews more absurdist you yeah. know especially the longer dilbert goes on but 
uh, by the time office space had rolled around, I mean, it had kind of like the acutely observed, like little details and the management speak and the, yeah. again, the, the pile of petty humiliations and things. Um, there's a plot in some early Dilbert cartoons where Wally figures out that uh, his severance package would, act, which act, would actually be better than his annual salary. <laughs> so he tries to he tries to get himself fired and just keeps like getting more and more like acclaim. <laughs> so he, he, he can't get himself fired, even though that would actually be like more beneficial for him. Um, it's a catch which, 22, which, uh, you know, for yeah, the, which, for which the is a very world. office space. Well, it's a very office space kind of scenario. Like when they, uh, fix the glitch yeah. for Milton. Um, <laughs> that reminds me very much of that Wally plot. So I, I don't, I, I think that, I think the big issue is really just kind of with the, the film's sort of troubled studio history. And I don't, mm. Mike judge is so popular and his stuff all achieves cult status. I don't know why studios don't just don't believe in him, but yeah. <laughs> basically every big movie he's done office space, idiocracy. Uh, there was one a few years ago called extract. Mm-hmm. Um, he he comes up with these ideas. He produce, you know, he he puts it together, writes it, directs it, and then the studio gets like cold feet and just starts messing with them. You know, they want like cuts or reshoots or, or you know, or then and then they finally lose faith in it and just sort of dump it in the market, which mm-hmm. I think is what happened with Office Space, where they spent almost nothing on its advertisement. Um, and even today, the the cover of the DVD, which is basically unchanged from the tape back in the day. <laughs> yes. You, you don't have any like pictures of the stars or anything. It's just that guy covered in post-its. Yeah. Um, so they didn't market it very well. Uh, they just sort of dumped it. And, and so fortunately it became kind of a sleeper hit through word of mouth. Yeah. And like, you, you, you we've all seen those movies where, you know, you've only heard of it through a friend who insists that you watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Which takes time. But I think that actually builds a much more loyal following because you've got that sense of discovery rather than, you know, like yeah. the latest, or, or maybe like uh, being may- fed to you. <laughs> maybe okay. like in the experience of some of my uh, friends uh, who who got laid off from companies like uh, all the telecom companies that crashed at the turn of the century, and maybe they were just sitting at home watching it on endless repeat yeah. on Comedy <laughs> Central because they didn't have mm-hmm. any work to do. Uh, yeah. a, a lot of people um, back in Oklahoma where I grew up, um, that was like a an amazing job in the late nineties to get these, uh, telecommunications jobs. And it was like a huge industry that was exploding. People had never worked in an office setting before. Um, you know, I even tried unsuccessfully to get one of those jobs, which is probably good in retrospect. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it just, <laughs> it occurs to me that maybe that was a lot of people's, uh, first experience of it and then appreciation of it for what it was. Mm-hmm. Even if, even if like me, I, I've never really worked in an office setting, but so much of the movie just rings true in the relationships between coworkers and management mm-hmm. yeah. and, yes. and everything. So, yeah, well, I definitely want to get into sort of a, um, kind of a social critique. I mean, what this movie sort of says about our society and how our economic, the way we're economically organized, what that does to our human relations. Right. And I think that's kind of a a key aspect of what this movie is trying to get at. Um, And also, I mean, to go back to Jordan's point, 
to release something in early February uh, is that's sort of the dead zone right. in, in theatrical yeah. release. Right. And so we are at that moment. This is when it was released. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that shows you just what they thought of it at the time. If we don't know what to do with this. We'll throw it out there. Right. It's not, right. yeah, it's not Oscar prestige bait. So we'll throw it into December. We'll just throw February and see what happens. Um, yeah. So just real quickly to summarize the plot, uh, uh, Peter Gibbons is this disaffected office worker who works with a couple, of uh, likable schmucks, um, Samir and Michael Bolton. Um, a lot of made, a lot is made of uh, uh, played by David Herman, Michael Bolton's uh, name, share, sharing sharing a name with the singer, um, and he gets hypnotized uh, at a but into not caring about his job. But before he could be brought out of hypnosis, the hyp- hypnotist dies. <laughs> And so he kind of goes on in this perpetual state of hypnosis at which he starts showing up to work and doing a really bad job, not showing up to work. He starts showing up and breaking all the conventions um, at a time when there are these two consultants brought in to uh, streamline the company, i.e. lay people off. And for whatever reason, his lack of uh, motivation impresses them. And he gets (laughs) promoted to upper management while his friends get uh, laid off who are actually doing work. And, uh, and so he starts to snap out of his malaise at this point and concocts an idea um, where they will uh, create a virus that rips the company off, basically, based on a, a plot from Superman 3 <laughs> with Richard Pryor, <laughs> which is awesome. a funny piece of intertextuality right there. Um, and then, uh, you know, that's sort of the basic plot of the movie. Um, and in that, he meets uh, a waitress who's similarly put, along, put upon, played by Jennifer Aniston. In, uh, at a local Fridays like uh, establishment called Chachkis, and uh, and and we see that her workplace also is filled with these sorts of indignities, and so it really is kind of a general critique of work uh, and and the role, the outsized role that work plays in the American life, right? And so um, let me just kind of throw it with you, and I'll start maybe with Jordan this time. What are some favorite? like moments or scenes or characters for you. Uh, and then we'll kind of get into maybe what it all means after we get through this. Oh gosh. Uh, I thought I was prepared for this. Now I'm thinking of everything <laughs> in the movie. Uh, yeah. if you got to narrow it down from the whole movie, um, I get, I get really frustrated in traffic. So just, <laughs> just the opening sequence, uh, you know, the opening credits, that, that sensation of getting nowhere, First of all, it encapsulates kind of the first half of the movie anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the feeling that you're like just busting it and getting nowhere with it uh, while some, you know, elderly person with a walker is like getting further up the freeway than you are. Yes. But, but that 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 is so perfectly staged to capture what that kind of frustration feels like. It's it's almost too real to be funny to me, but it's it's hilarious. Um, I also love, you know, destroying the printer, um, obviously. Um, oh, gosh. Everything with Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, the next, the next door neighbor played by Diedrich Botter. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the magazine salesman, yeah. uh, I had forgotten Orlando about Jones. him. I had forgotten um, about yeah. him until this, until this viewing. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do with 18 subscriptions to vibe? <laughs> uh, um, but the, uh, oh man, there's, there's so many good ones. I don't think I can narrow it down. My favorite characters though, are certainly Michael Bolton because I, I am, acquainted shall we say with his barely suppressed rage (laughs) um Mm. and and the way that it just sort of boils over sometimes and again it's it's not even necessarily anything rational rational it's just like the petty indignities again um you know like getting the inscrutable error message on the printer that kind of thing um 
I love Mike Judge as the manager manager of Tchotchkes. Yeah. Uh, because he is apparently they just I don't know if they just didn't cast an actor or if they just needed somebody for that part, but he just stepped in. And he he nails that like <laughs> condescending your your uniform is the most important thing in the world right now. Yeah. Kind of You do want to respect you you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but that's the you thing. You do want to express yourself, right? That, that head shake body language he does. Yeah, and, and it's also, it's like there's that kind of person who wants you to take this more seriously than you should, right? And so this yeah. becomes like a moral choice on yeah, your yes. own part to not overindulge with uh, flair in this case, right? The uh, yes. the kind of fal- false showing of enthusiasm for your job, right? And I, so, I don't want yeah. to. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Sorry. That's all I wanted to follow up with. And also, speaking of, you know, People who let that let their priorities get get out of whack on stuff like that. If uh, if you've ever lived in the dorms at a very conservative Christian college, um, you may have met people uh, <laughs> operating along a similar wavelength when it comes to things like shaving every day. Or I know where like you're that. going. Yes, <laughs> there is. He's so, like the TA, right? At, yes, at, yeah. at a um, at a Christian college dorm, yeah. like who shave today? Um, who's kind of towing the kind of evangelical party line. Right. Um, and in the way that middle management here is, uh, is towing, you know, the, the restaurant, uh, corporate line. Um, my gosh, that's a really good, uh, really good analogy. <laughs> he that, did feel that, like that yeah. attitude rang so true, you know, especially the kind of just, just the whole attitude. Uh, I love the bobs, um, <laughs> particularly, um, Oh, what's his name? John T. McGinley. Yeah. Um, and his like very kind of weird squirrely sort of enthusiasm. <laughs> Uh, I like Tom, the guy played by Richard Reilly, who yeah. does get let go. You know, he's a he's a people person. Damn it! Uh, <laughs> uh, I have people <laughs> skills. What's his, wrong with you people? <laughs> just his his shame and embarrassment. You feel for the guy. You yes. Like, and it's that it's that perfect Mike Judge thing, where you're laughing at and with him and feeling bad for him at the same time. Um, and then his jump to conclusions, Matt, just kills me. And that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I should probably stop there, um, but yeah, Lawrence uh, and Peter himself is—he's is, kind of the blank canvas that everything else is sort of yeah. splashed on. But I really love Ron Livingston. He's not in a terrible lot, um, and it's really weird. It's t- like two years after this, he was in Band of Brothers. Oh, okay. Uh, the HBO miniseries, and it's set in World War II. So watch these things back to back, and it's very strange to see. Peter Gibbons in like a parachute infantry regiment in World War Two. Yeah, but uh, he's he. It, it would be very easy to make Peter's part boring. Yeah, and he doesn't. He he feels like a real person, and you honestly identify with him. Yeah, if, um, if Ryan Reynolds had played that, it would have been insufferable, sort of. Yes. And so you almost yeah. need Peter's uh, uh, or Ron Livingston's. Just yeah, sincere enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also watched. Uh, um, some kind of a commentary video on YouTube about this. And they said they offered Matt Damon the part as well. Oh, uh, interesting. Which I cannot imagine. Oh, I can't either. It no. would never have, have been what it is with somebody like Matt Damon. And then Ryan Reynolds is just too small. He's just too much of a, yeah, just a sarcastic cut up all the time. So mm-hmm. yeah, you need someone who's able to be put upon by the world. Right. And, um, yeah. and so, yeah. Um, Jeffrey, what about you? What are some highlights of the movie for you? Well, geez, um, pretty much everything Jordan said is is on my list. I'm trying to see if there's any anything that can uh, differentiate. I mean, I I really love, even though he's not very um, very Im- 
he, he's not in the movie and many scenes in the movie that much, but Dietrich Bader's character, yeah. because Dietrich Bader's character is basically the the guy that I worked with for like most <laughs> of the jobs that I had after high school until probably 2004. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I can relate so much to that, that kind of a dude. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm doing I, the I drywall love... up there at the new McDonald's. No, man, yeah, I got but... it. He's got his own can opener. Yeah. Um, but I, I love uh, I love all the scenes with the bobs because this that that uh, like the the deep anxiety that everybody feels having to talk to them because they just know that that uh, they're potentially going to get axed and and how well that that uh, that plays out in those scenes and how how accurate it is to the the way people feel and like I so relate to uh, Michael Bolton's. <laughs> just experience like Jordan was saying of just barely repressed rage. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you could, you could fully see like a, like a, a thought bubble cutaway where he's pulling out a, a nine millimeter and, and, and capping both of them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Process. I mean, it's just, yeah. Uh, I don't think there were any other scenes, honestly, besides the ones that, um, Jordan mentioned that stood out that much to me. Well, let me like well, uh, elaborate. Okay, Jordan, go ahead. No, I, 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 we've both been remiss. Stephen Root as Milton. Okay, yeah, I wanted like, to talk. I feel like yeah. he deserves his own like conversation, yes. right? So let's yeah, hold I, off I, I on Milton. I love Stephen Root. I just, I, have, I have to say, he's he's so good. He is an extremely versatile character actor who's mm-hmm. been in lots of stuff that you've probably seen him a million times and never noticed him, sort of, right? And in this movie, yeah. um, he sort of perf- perfectly embodies that kind of put upon rage. I have a particular argument about that character that I want to kind of you know run by you guys at the end of this or towards the end as we get on here a little bit um but um also so i want to kind of talk about um oh gosh the guy is it tom the guy that gets hit by the car um yeah yeah. so the guy with the jump to conclusions matt he's like the embodiment of this sort of older uh, experienced person in this kind of corporate world who understands the um Oh, the kind of stakes and, and the kind of precarity of, of working in this sort of world. And so he's the first one to get really freaked out when he hears the bobs are coming, the, uh, the, the consultants and that sort of thing. And ultimately he does get laid off and is about to kill himself. Right. But, um, decides mm-hmm. not to for some, like he says this moment of love for his wife. Um, he's trying to suffocate himself in his car in his garage. And then he's backs out. He gets hit by a drunk driver and apparently gets like a, a seven figure settlement. And and there's this moment where he's telling he throws a party <laughs> for himself and he's in a wheelchair. He's in a full body cast. He's wearing a halo like you could not think of a more miserable like existence. And he's exuberant. Right. And he tells it's Peter joy. Yeah. To, to hang in there because I'm living proof that good things can happen if you don't give up. Right. <laughs> and so and it's just like to me that is like it's obviously absurd. But that is kind of the point that the movie wants to make about what our work life has done to us spiritually, that that is a better um, alternative to living than, than, than what going to everyday office life is like, right? You have to have a near death experience to have a good, to have a good life basically in American work. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, and so that's really funny to me. Um, and, and also kind of like sad and insightful. I also want to like talk a little bit about um, Gary Cole as Bill Lumberg. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of really famous. I mean, he's like a meme. 
that yeah. great, yeah. right? You know, um, <laughs> that sort of, yeah. but that performance is so good. It's so like smarmy and, mm-hmm. and, and he's so like unaware of himself. And, uh, and, and so the, to me that, that, that Bill Lumberg, without playing it the way he plays it, I don't know that the stakes get built enough to make the movie believable. Right. But to have, yeah the idea of facing this boss like every day of your life, like in the way that he's performed by Gary Cole, I think that that is um, really kind of the linchpin of the whole movie <laughs> in a lot of ways. I don't yeah. think the movie works if if you have a weak performance there, right? And, and so, and, right. and he really, and he plays it um, just brilliantly, I think. So mm-hmm. um, it's and, not just that he's pretentious and condescending. He's so unflappable. Yes. <laughs> which is, which it's, it, you you feel like no matter how how much you're outranked by somebody, as long as they can be occasionally surprised by something, you're sort of on the same level. But I, maybe that's also one reason why that scene where the camera does that kind of like pan around on him and he's suddenly in the hot seat, <laughs> his mm-hmm. that's the one time again you kind of see him discomfited. Yeah, and then maybe that's part of why it's so satisfying too. Yeah, other than when Peter like takes down the wall of his cubicle so he could see the window, <laughs> which was always ridiculous. Right. You think about like you've got an open window and you're covering it with these cubicles, right? And then <laughs> uh, and then he just walks away from Lumberg, who doesn't know what to do right. except okay, yeah. thanks, Peter. <laughs> like yeah. he has to pretend like he's in control. Um, <laughs> And so I guess that's a a moment where I I want to again I want to save Milton himself for a little bit because he is sort of the um, I don't know the agent of chaos in this movie and I think so much of the movie's okay. meaning revolves around him but I do think that um, it's important to talk about what this movie says um, or observes or what kind of claims it makes about the role of work in not only the 90s, but but I think it's still true today. Um, and, and so one thing I want to kind of just throw out there is that I, oh gosh, I don't know how long ago was it? And I don't remember who was on the show. Forgive me, Jordan, if it was you. Um, the uh, shop class is Soulcraft. I know Peddler was on that show. and That I don't wasn't, that wasn't okay. me. I remember listening to it. Yeah. And, and so we did a show about that book um, by... Um, Oh gosh, I forget the guy's name now. Um, uh, Crawford. It, yes, yes, yes. The, uh, Crawford. Yeah, and um, called Chop Classes Soulcraft. And one of the arguments of that book was that in the kind of corporate version of capitalism, which replaces kind of workmanship and and that sort of thing, right? Um, not only do you kind of lose like the means of production and you you don't own your own labor anymore, but what work becomes since people aren't doing anything practical or actually measurable your whole work is about just sort of managing other people's perception of you uh, and I think this movie really gets it at how that plays out in a workspace right um, and so Bill Lumberg that when he has that reaction when Peter walks away from him he has to say face somehow so he has to look like he's okay with what's just happened even though it's yeah. absurd right and yeah, so he even says yeah we'll, we'll get somebody to go ahead and take care of yeah, this for you yeah because <laughs> I'm in control I will sign some other right, person right. to do this right yeah. um, and so I think that that's a really um um, powerful concept that this movie really picks up on. And there's another, I don't even know who the person is. It's just sort of a, an extra in the movie. In a couple of the, the office meeting scenes when everybody's sort of huddled around 
cubicles. There's one guy who's just kind of just schmucky looking, meek looking, bald guy, I think, um, who is sitting there with this like sincere nod and like <laughs> smile about every dumb thing that management says. Like he's sucking up, like just in his like, I'm paying close attention to what you're saying. Notice that, please, right? And so I think that you see that that urge to kind of manage perceptions of yourself um, is really kind of a powerful motivator um, in this movie. And, and it plays out through a lot of what goes on. Um, are there any other other sort of observations about work life? Um, Jeffrey, I know that you, you said you had a lot to, to say based on personal experience. Do you want to take this one first? Well, I don't know how much I have to say, but uh, so, okay. What's your question again? What does this movie sort of um, hit on about what it, what work is like in America, right? Um, what work does to us as human beings, like what observations, what kind of uh, insights is it providing there? Well, I guess the way I look at it is it's it really speaks strongly to like what you're talking about that the work for so many people has changed from making something, producing something, having something tangible that you or like that old trope that that you get in the 80s and and the 90s of like the the baby boomer uh, parent coming home and or talking to their kids or going to like a career day at school and having no way to explain what their job title actually means. Yes. Like I'm not a fireman. I'm not a carpenter. I'm not a plumber. I have this five word title that has absolutely no meaning outside of the context, super specific context of my work. And for me, I think like office space, uh, is emblematic of the the way work transformed during the 20th century from something people you know it was something tangible to this thing like you're talking about with um uh it's it's very imaginary almost yeah it's 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 all yeah. amount of a matter of perceptions and 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 that's and now i mean Obviously, there's still a lot of tangible work out there, but I think most of the archetypes in movies and and in popular culture seem to be of this like meaningless work mm-hmm. or this work that is just like I don't even know how to describe what I do. It's just this. Uh, <laughs> it's just this this thing that a corporate uh, a corporate board has come up with a, a few catchy names for nonsensical names that bury what it is that I actually do in some um, verbal, uh, verbose sense of meaning. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And in order to kind of make something feel real, um, they end up creating this like logistical uh, set of bureaucratic practices, the TPS reports, for example, uh, in this. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so um, there's a, a cover sheet that has to go on these TPS reports, right? And and the cover sheet is very important. That's the first thing Peter is confronted with. There's eight different people telling him that he messed up his TPS report cover sheets. And did you not get that memo? And, and so, yeah. Um, and in, no one actually listens to him when he <laughs> explains that he knows what's going on and he understands right. the whole situation, but then they just ignore him and go through the motions, the managerial speak and all all that sort of thing. And it's yeah. just mm-hmm. mind numbing. <laughs> it, it's the closest thing that can account for work. Right. You know, and so even yeah. that's the question they asked Lumberg uh, in his little mini interview is how much time yeah. do you think you go spend going over these TPS reports? And he's like, um, right. And so, yeah. So, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a great delivery, yeah. And he's a very underrated actor. His performance as Mike Brady in those stupid Brady Bunch movies is dead on. I mean, it's like, it's so funny. His, oh, I don't think he, I've seen those. Oh, he nails the voice of Mike Brady so hard. It's mm-hmm. like, he is really, really good. So, um, um, Jordan. Well, speaking of not having tangible a- aspects to your work, I'm, I'm, I'm struck that, and I, I think I just first realized this this morning, at the end of the film, Peter is actually living a more fulfilled life as a construction worker. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. like lit- literally building and taking things apart, right? Yeah. And he's literally cleaning up the mess he's, of uh, that Inatech left behind. Yeah. The, um, the, 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 he's as, digging as a, up, digging through the flames of the building, right? Right. Um, yeah. With his neighbor Lawrence, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So, I mean, and yeah. so, so I, I think there's there's something there. And, and even, even their plot to rip off the company – they're talking about, you know, again, fractions of fractions of pennies. Yeah. Which is only something that exists in the platonic world of pure numbers. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, and it's so, so everything that they do and the restaurant Joanna works at is tchotchkes. Yeah. You know, these like little, little meaningless things. <laughs> so, I mean, everything is like, it's small, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. And, and the ultimate irony that they couldn't have even foreseen is that all that Y2K stuff was overblown. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're, yeah busting their butts to get ready for y2k and it doesn't ultimately matter right yeah um so you know changing literal single digits of code and you know stealing you know thousands thousands of cents off of like rounded transactions and things as opposed to at the end of the film when he's actually stepped out of that and is actually physically doing something in the real world and i I didn't have (laughs) I say I didn't have time to watch it again over the weekend. I, I watched two episodes of Mystery Science Theater. Um, <laughs> it's not a bad choice. Uh, yeah, it's never a well, bad thing to do. I, this this isn't exactly kid friendly, um, but uh, yeah, he he's is he back in a relationship with Joanna at the end of the movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I mean, he's actually. I mean, I read this as uh, we'll get to your you know red stapler here in yeah, a little yeah. bit, but um, I read it more as kind of like a, a kind of archetypal story of a person embracing finding meaning and responsibility, you know, um, sort of stepping out of this world where it's all about kind of status and like tiny, tiny little imaginary transactions. Yeah. And, you know, he, the first solution that he tries is to not care. Yeah. Which is no solution at all. It makes everything worse. So mm-hmm. only after he like embraces the wrong that he's done and like tries to make it right in a concrete way. Uh, he's saved by Milton Ex Machina, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he has actually yeah. learned to embrace the consequences of what he's done, which is the first time I think you see anybody do that in the whole movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, e- even with Lumberg, you know, we'll get somebody to clean this up. <laughs> he, he's even he is shifting everything away from himself as fast oh, as yeah. he can. Yeah. I don't and, know. Does that does that make any kind of sense? It does. Jeffrey, follow up. Oh, I was just gonna say, does does. There's something about the way uh, the whole movie progresses to me, and maybe this you guys would see this too, um, where at the end where Peter ends up in just this this kind of blue-collar manual labor job, it kind of is to me a little prophetic about like in – you have in, in the broader culture right now this realization that we need to encourage a lot of kids to do vocational school rather than four-year – college and there's like it's almost like he's 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 he sees 20 years ago the this core 
uh, <laughs> he sees this course. I shouldn't gesticulate so much. Uh, <laughs> he, he sees this course that, that things are taking where there's just a lot of people that don't belong in offices, mm. that maybe don't belong in a four-year college, mm -hmm. and that they're better off and more fulfilled and uh, wholer per people uh, in a in a simpler job or in a tangible job or in, in a blue collar job, you know, cause well, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I pretty much grew up with this idea that everybody was supposed to try to go to college and abandon the kinds of careers that your fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers did that, you know, quote unquote built America, you know, and we're all just supposed to go to college and get office jobs and, you know, sit at a desk and that sort of thing. And I, I don't know, I kind of see a, a, a way in the movie where it, it, where it lands with Peter at the end at peace with himself and his work life, just cleaning up rubble. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I, so I, I have kind of like a, a split experience in my life. I'm a very kind of uh, my life has taken a very unconventional turn. I did not anybody that listens to the show can hear in my voice that I don't belong in academia because I'm not <laughs> articulate and I, I sound like a brute and all this. But um, uh, I, I did not end up or begin in this sort of track. I ended I did work in factories and and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And so what I saw in those times though. I didn't, it still, office space, office space still spoke to me based on my factory experience, right? Uh, and, and I feel oh, like definitely, yeah. the, the blue collar, um, white collar distinction, I think is one of the things this movie wants to kind of like tear down because like the restaurant job is just as bad, right? And uh, I mean, yeah. you get a sense, I mean, Lawrence and Peter live right next door to each other. So mm -hmm. wherever, oh, whatever yeah. job they're doing, they're living the same kind of like domestic life kind of, right? Yeah, I mean, um, an, an electronic an electronic assembly line is just as bad yes. as a machine assembly line. Yes. So yeah, I get that. Yeah. yeah, and so that that's sort of my experience. So I don't know that I can answer your question, I guess is what I'm saying, because I, I kind of have had my feet in so many different worlds that- um, It's just an observation, really. Yeah. And, and no, and you're not wrong, for sure. And and I think you're right. I think that there is this sort of longing for what is what is more authentic, something physical and, and like in, in our kind of lived spaces, rather than this kind of theoretical world sure. of numbers, well, right? Like like, like look at uh, the this trend with like millennials in urban settings yeah. to have gardens yeah. to have chickens on the roof of yeah. a of a Brooklyn uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, walk up or something like that yeah yeah so. yeah exactly and so yeah I think that that's def you're definitely right on with with, uh, with the complicated nature of the critique that this movie is making there um, I, I know that I mean Jordan has a, has things to do so I want to make two points um, and and I want to leave room if I can for you guys to uh, to bring any kind of takes you have on the movie as well but um, I'm practicing thesis statements in front of the world here so one. <laughs> Is I feel like um, the Office is almost the 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 TV show The Office, at least in the way the American version extrapolated the British version, is almost inconceivable um, without having this movie come before it. <laughs> and I think that uh, I, I I've been rewatching re this with my children; they they really like that show. And um, Michael Scott in The Office is clearly going over and above to try to not be Bill Lumberg, right? Um, he's trying to not be that kind of faceless thing. But what results from that is no less dehumanizing for the people who work in the office, right? And so I think um, one kind of observation you can make from that, it isn't there's something systemically wrong um, with this kind of life, right? It isn't about having 
more or less moral actors in the management positions. And I think that's a direct pushback on a big thing I see in LinkedIn lately are all these bizarre, like a good manager is unforgettable and you never want to leave them. This kind of like romantic language to <laughs> I want, describe. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, um, yeah, I think that the, by juxtaposing these two objects, the office and office space, I think you can sort of see that this is more of a systemic thing and it isn't about having the right nice person in the management position. The system is what's dehumanizing everybody, right? And so that that's one claim I want to make. And I, I'll leave room for you guys to push back on me there if you like. Uh, that makes I'll, sense to me. Yeah, it, it, same here. I think um, – uh, I think Jeffrey first brought in authenticity. Yeah. Uh, I think what Bill Lumberg and Michael Scott have in common is that they are just, in, just these like extremely inflated personalities that they're that they are definitely putting up a front, and in a weird bit of um, overlap with Office Space. Uh, I can't remember if it was the people. Uh, they, they've actually got some people in common. Um, the Mike Judge world and the uh, the, the movie the TV show The Office. Um, the guy who played Toby did a lot of work. I know on King oh. of the Hill. Oh, is that right? Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know if he was involved in Office Space or not, but <laughs> at least they've got a few strands of DNA, DNA in common. But um, uh, the pretension of both of them, um, Michael Scott. Oh, what I was about to say there, I can't remember exactly if it was like one of the people who developed the program or if it was Steve Carell's own direction for himself. Uh, but he. He conceived of the character of Michael Scott, you know, now that they've it's really brilliant because he's not just playing a character. He's playing a character who is also trying to play a character for these cameras that have been introduced into his work. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, And and what he said was that he played every line as if Michael Scott hoped Jennifer Aniston would one day see the footage (laughs) and be impressed by him. So especially for the first several seasons, you can totally see that he's like really trying to seem cool yeah. worldly wise you know kind of canny and, and he's just completely unself-aware it's in a completely different way from bill lumberg but they're both clearly putting on a front clearly acting too big for their britches um managing perceptions of self right yes and, yeah. and if we don't if we don't have any idea how intelligent bill lumberg actually is it's just because he's successfully hidden <laughs> hidden that uh, michael scott it's really apparent that he's <laughs> stupid um and yeah it is ultimately very dehumanizing because what it makes for michael scott uh where where for bill lumberg his employees are kind of his minions that he simply officiates over right uh for michael scott all of his employees are kind of a captive audience yeah for his bloviating and his you know attempts to impress everybody who comes into the office whether it's the camera crew or uh Who's the who's the girl they take on the booze cruise? Uh, there's some like person from corporate Brian for the booze cruise episode of The Office that okay. he's clearly trying to in, in, uh, impress. Um, and isn't Michael Scott like always trying to be friends with everybody? Yes. Yeah. Where yes. Lumberg doesn't give a flying fig about yeah. anybody that works for him, which is actually the one thing I would prefer about Bill Lumberg, <laughs> right? Because that 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 I. Call me old school, but I feel like those really like buddy buddy relationships between superiors and inferiors like that is just not appropriate, and it also makes it weird. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they tend to be awful. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and I, I mean that's maybe one of the most cringeworthy things that Michael Scott does. Yeah. Um, well, in but the, yeah, the, that 
and, oh, go ahead. And Lumberg will you know ask a question that no one even bothers answering because they know he's not going to wait for the answer, right? And so, um, right. how's it going? And they just stand there and stare at yeah. him and <laughs> wait for the yeah. Um, um, well, and, um, Jeffrey, did you have something to say? Oh, not at the moment. No. Um, well, let me just like run one other thing back about well, Milton. Okay, I, I, mm-hmm. I've got to bow out at this point. Oh, um, okay. Thanks, yeah, thanks for having me on, though. Just oh, cool. give, give me a graceful kind of yes exit exit cue. Thank uh, you. I wish I could stick around for the rest. Thank you. Though. No problem, Jordan. Thanks. Uh, give, leave yeah. a comment on my my uh, red reading of the stapler here um, if okay. when you listen to it. But yeah, um, <laughs> but do. yeah, for all of you listening, thanks. you can uh, you scream back at me on Facebook whenever you like. So, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, so for me and Jeffrey, then I just want to run this one by him um, as uh, as Jordan says goodbye. Um, I had to get this done in the middle of the day so uh, he had to teach and so um but the um um milton character i think is like way more important than he may seem he seems kind of just at the surface like some sort of like bizarre coloration uh for the office right but i actually think thematically he's really important and the way in which um you heard a little bit about it in that clip i played at the beginning his desk keeps getting moved to more and more marginal spaces of the um office right all the way down to the end when he's put into the very basement of the office right um and um and he's um not being paid at this point. Uh, they've actually, instead of just firing him, they've just cut off his pay um, until he stops coming to work. Right. And, and so they're basically extracting slave labor from, uh, <laughs> from poor Milton. Right. And so I right. feel like there is a bit of a, an allegory to be seen in Milton's character here. And, uh, and, and, you know, Jeffrey, knowing your politics as I do, you're probably somewhat sympathetic to this view right and i and i think that in the original cartoon we just showed there's no indication that that stapler is red right and so that is very pro that's a very prominent symbol of this uh of this and so i feel like um uh, milton's um fixation on this red stapler (laughs) which he goes back into lumberg's office to try and find right has something to do with like leftist politics i do feel like there is a a marxist critique of 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 uh wage exploitation uh going on uh of labor exploitation going on with um with milton and and and, um i i i almost i can't even see how you can deny that on some level what are your thoughts on on him and and mike sort of maybe over reading here of that of his his character yeah no i i think that that definitely rings true because the the narrative of milton's character is just like you said it's just this underlying current of more and more and more uh oppression of him as as a, a representative of the 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 common man the the worker who's being exploited now as far as the stapler goes i was reading something the other day about that i don't think there's necessarily any symbolism in that okay Uh, i think they were just trying to because uh basically they wanted it to stand out visually um but nobody uh produced a red stapler so they actually had to paint it on set it was what i read yeah but then Swingline eventually started to produce them with the pro- and well you know there's capitalism, there's capitalism yes. for you yeah. <laughs> it consumes so, its own descent i'm right? sure there's some complicated critique uh, neo-marxist critique you can make there um out of that but no i think it's i think it's a good observation because I mean, it, it ends in him finally um, acting on the 
revolution, so to speak, that he has been mumbling about under his breath to everyone, and mm-hmm. no one's been listening to him in the end when he does actually set the building on fire. Yeah. Although why uh, it, it it never uh, was clear to me why he picks up the stapler in Lumberg's office, but then it's found later in the rubble. Oh, that's so, like, a good why point. Why didn't he take it with him? <laughs> I wonder if he never found it. We saw him. We see him going in and looking for it. Maybe he never finds I, I, it. It's I. I could have sworn that he picks it up and oh. lo- and holds it for a second, but then they cut away and and it's oh. not really. Uh, it's yeah, possible. Amazing. I missed that detail. That's a really good question, though. Yeah, that could yeah. be a flaw. Uh, yeah, well, and- just, it's it struck me because it, that just struck me when I was watching it the other night because it's like, well, if it's such a beloved object of his, why doesn't he take it with him? And then they find it. But, I mean, it's kind of necessary at the end for them to find it in the rubble, too. So, you know. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, it does sort of pass the symbolism on to Peter, who's now, like, a member of, like, the literal working class, right? And and, uh, and so he's able to dig that red stapler out of the rubble in some sort of triumphant gesture, right? And and so I think, yeah, it could work. And with the intention of of returning it to Milton, who has taken the money. So uh, for those of you who have not seen the movie but have yet listened to this show this long uh, for some reason, (laughs) (laughs) um, what they've done, um, there's an account or a programming error that Michael Bolton makes. And so the money starts accumulating much faster than they intended and they realize they're going to get caught now. And so what Mm. um, Peter does is sort of take all the blame on himself. writes a letter and for some reason makes traveler's checks out of the money they stole and uh <laughs> and puts that under yeah, Lundberg's door figure that out. <laughs> and uh and the, the the turn of events is that uh, milton when he's going looking for a stapler also finds this money and he goes away to some resort island where he's bossing you know cabana waiters around uh to uh <laughs> to to get proper service right and threatening yeah, to yeah. you know leave bad reviews on yelp or whatever it was at the right. time right and so um right um, i love that the, the waiter insults him in spanish yes. and i don't know probably a lot of people didn't pick up on that but i was like oh okay <laughs> yeah exactly right um and so but yeah i feel like milton's character though is there to just sort of embody the utter dehumanization of this way of life. Right. And the way that he actually tries to create like his own turf out of this. And that's what's so kind of so personally humiliating for him is that, I mean, he has a special stapler that he likes and he gets to listen to the radio at a reasonable volume from uh, right. nine to 11 or something like that. Right. Um, Cause he enjoys listening yeah, at a reasonable. Yeah, that's, true, that's, true. Yeah, that's right. That's the truth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he should have done the whole show in Milton voice. Um, and so, uh, and so I, I don't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> no, but, uh, but and so I feel like he is sort of not just like, like humorous flavor as some of the absurdity in the background of the office, but he is sort of at the center of the kind of working class critique of this system that um, allows someone like Lumberg to uh, wield power over people um, to the point of literal slavery um, at the <laughs> at the end, almost literal, not right. quite literal, but because um, he is yeah, free to he leave. He still doesn't he, leave, yes. even though he hasn't gotten his paycheck for a few weeks. Yes. And they just keep bouncing him back and forth between HR and Lumberg and HR. And, and it's just, yeah. yeah. It's a nightmare for him. Yeah, because they fixed the glitch. And so he burns the building down. So you have kind of a very clear (laughs) symbolic representation of the revolution, right? Um, Of the proletariat revolution. And so, yeah, I think, I think that it's, uh, I I think he's a really super interesting character there. Um, um, Any other thoughts, Jeffrey? You know, uh, in, 
in thinking about this, like this morning, I was trying to write some quick notes and, and just actually think about this because I was a little busy over the weekend. But, you know, one thing kind of uh, occurred to me um, that this movie was my observation is kind of like this movie is sort of for Gen X what and representationally what falling down was for uh boomers mm-hmm. in a way it's I can- like uh I, I guess got this sense like okay with falling down it's like this this overconfident um i should be in command of everything you know in relation to to my life and cr- crushing uh, anybody who stands in my way kind of a narrative um with this sort of stereotypical uh lackadaisical gen x just go through the motions but can't find meaning in what you're doing but you've been you've grown up with this this uh narrative that you should find meaning in your work and you're supposed to follow your dreams and and all this stuff i don't know it just seemed like they're the movies aren't that far apart i think falling down was like 93 yeah but they i don't know i just get this sense that they kind of like um give you two different generational worlds of perceptions about work and responses to it i mean one is obviously satirical comedy and the other one's like sort of overly serious in in a way but i don't know yeah that's a really cool um given the (laughs) Like the comparison in time is really interesting. So you have people seeing a very similar like cultural environment from very different generational perspectives, um, given that those yeah. movies were made at the same time. I now that you've said that, I wonder if we could. What would it be interesting if we threw in the Graduate as sort of a the way that the Boomers were seeing the workplace from that age, from the same age as Peter, basically, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you're, so you you have a kind of um, entirely different uh, perspective from the, the graduate to falling down, right? On the kind of moral arc of the boomers, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you will, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that, that's very interesting. I love that comparison, actually. I, I have not seen falling down for a long time. Uh, Same here. I, yeah. I think probably when it came out was the last time I saw it. Um, but I do remember that movie. It has stuck with me um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, that's really cool. That's a great observation. Um, anything else you'd like to sort of add? I I feel remiss Not that really. we, we never talked about Samir um, because I think he's oh, a, he's like yeah. a super interesting character as well. He also has this kind of boiling over rage that Michael mm-hmm. Bolton has. Um, but he is sort of the only... Um, non-white person like in this movie right. except for right. um, Orlando Jones's uh, magazine yeah. salesman who comes in at the end and so right. he's the only kind of glimpse we get into how like uh, ethnic and religious minorities experience uh, the same kind of dehumanization like differently right. than, than, than white people do right and, and I think that yeah that's, because like Samir's character he has no at no point in the story really does he have this any sense that he can be empowered to do anything but follow that immigrant narrative of nose to the grindstone, work hard, be successful in the traditional model. Yeah. And like he's terrified of even trying this. And then what is it? Uh, Peter at one point, and it, I mean, it doesn't really make sense, but he's like, 
uh, Samir is talking to him about, oh, we could go to jail and this could be terrible. And he's like, man, this is America. <laughs> but then he doesn't follow it up with anything. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like super morally ambiguous. And, uh, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, that's the, that's the, 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 the white guy perspective is like, oh, we can do anything if we just do it. Yeah. But then Samir is like, has this super realistic uh, immigrant perspective of like, I'm the underdog here. Yeah. And I, I, you guys will be crushed if we get in trouble, but I'll be double crushed. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and, and he feels like really, and that's, he's the one who finally, Tells Peter that he is a very bad person. Right? Yes, that's, of, that's the answer he gives. You're a very bad person. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, and it's real. It's really interesting to me. I think he his inclusion is fascinating uh, as kind of a a pairing with Michael Bolton, but he offers a different perspective perspective on on the way these power relations come down upon um, people oh, yeah. of, of different sort of backgrounds. And so, yeah. And then it, it, kind of reminds me too of like in in the opening traffic scene where michael bolton is listening to gangster rap yes. and trying to like appropriate that uh that um <laughs> gangster rap rage with his rage and then the the street vendor trying to sell <laughs> the black street vendors coming up and he does the stereotypical white thing of locks looking askance and locks his door <laughs> turns it down yes. i'm like oh this this movie is so beautifully observational. It, it really is, the, the, and it's all in the details again, um, yeah. as we were saying. Um, yeah, and so, well, I just I wanted to do a, a little quickie episode, and I think we've done it pretty pretty well justice. Um, thank you so I much, so. Jeffrey. It was a pleasure to to have you to speak with you in person. I've communicated so much online, talking about yeah, yeah. this and various other shows. I, I, it's it's great to uh, to talk with you in person. Uh, again, if you have pleasure. a ever want to come back, just let me know <laughs> if you have an idea. Um, to, yeah, yeah. to uh, for a topic you're more than welcome um, and uh, thanks again to Jordan Poss who had to run a little bit early but uh, I'm hoping you guys enjoyed this um, it, I'm going to put this out in celebration and uh, recommend or you know commemoration of the 20th anniversary of, uh, of this really wonderful show if you do have any uh, questions or feedback or you want to take exception to some of the dumb things I usually say, um, then by all means, uh, go to the Facebook page and uh, you'll find links to the show notes there that you can comment on. Um, but as always, make sure that you go through your podcasts app and uh, like and review the, the show. That'll help other people sh find us. And uh, and if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com you'll find all the show notes um, and places you can uh, do all kinds of more fun things with us there. So um, thank you Jeffrey Carter. Um, thanks to Jordan Poss. Uh, my name is Danny Anderson thanking everyone for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Oh.